but it's a good thing. We'll, we'll, we'll let them off the hook. Uh, well, speaking of kids, uh, all kids I know love parades, and I know some of you love parades as well. So I want to begin this morning by testing your knowledge of parades. So I'm going to give you a quiz, uh, show you some pictures, and when you recognize the parade on the screen above, just go ahead and shout it out, okay? So the first one's an easy one. Does anybody know this one? Yes, it is the Rose Bowl Parade. No, it's not the... Yes, it's the Rose Bowl Parade. I'm sorry. I have my notes wrong. Uh, or, as I call it, the pregame show to the Rose Bowl. Um, starts really early. My girls love watching this one. Let's go to the next one. That's an easy one, huh? The Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, the oldest parade uh, in the United States, interestingly enough. The next one's a little bit more difficult. Victory Day Parade. It wasn't quite Victory Day, but it was uh, 1945. It was one of uh, the Victory Parades after World War II. Uh, this one took place in New York City. 4.5 million people lined Broadway to welcome home Army General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes. All right. And last one, or next one. This is my favorite one. Does anybody know this? This is the Lakers Victory Parade in 2009. Can I get an Amen. Uh, I looked really hard for a Phoenix Suns victory parade, and then I realized they've never won a championship. Sorry. Keep the faith. Um, and then the last one, uh, let's go to that. This is kind of a hard one, too. You guys know this one? This is the Patriots Duck Boat Parade a few months ago after they defeated uh, the Seahawks in Glendale uh, right down the road. Well, if you've ever been uh, to a good parade before, you know that uh, at a good parade, there's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of joy and anticipation. I remember when I was a kid, we used to live down the street from Disneyland, and my parents would take us there a few times a year. And I loved going to Disneyland because every time we went, when it got dark, we'd go towards the entrance and we'd watch the Main Street Electrical Parade. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Uh, it's been running for a few decades now, but as a seven or eight-year-old, it was just this magical, exciting experience watching the floats go by and watching the theme music start. And I think there was a similar sense of excitement on Palm Sunday when Jesus was on the last leg of his journey into the holy city. The streets were lined with thousands of giddy kids and expectant mothers and pilgrims all welcoming Jesus to this great Passover festival. Right? The great Passover festival, which was the Independence Day for the Israelites. Uh, the Passover festival was the day when God liberated their ancestors from Egypt, right? And it showed God's love and mercy and compassion for the Israelites. And in the spring of 33 AD, faithful Jews flooded into the city of Jerusalem to remember this event. The city went from being a city of about 50,000 to over half a million in just a few days. And I want to look at this story with you this morning. Uh, what I call the Palm Sunday Parade is located in all four Gospels, but we're going to be looking at Matthew's account. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them out at this time. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, but we're going to start with 1 through 7. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bibles with you, you can find the text in your sermon notes if you're following along there, and they'll also be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. This is the word of God for the people of God at Hope Covenant Church. As they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, that Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Let's stop there for a moment. I want to give us a little bit of background to what's going on in our text. Uh, So in the weeks prior to this event, Jesus and his disciples had traveled from the Galilee region, which is in the north of Israel, down south to the Jerusalem area. And and for the disciples, they had made this journey many times before, but for Jesus, it was his last trip, right? It was was the last uh, grand finale of his public ministry on earth. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land before, uh, you might know that the road that Jesus and his disciples are traveling on, the road from Jericho, which is east of Jerusalem, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, is a long, hard climb. And the reason for that is because Jericho, which is by the um, Dead Sea, is actually the lowest city on planet Earth as far as elevation goes. It's 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem, which is only a dozen or so miles away, is 3,000 feet above sea level. So you burned a lot of calories, right? You, uh, you really got some good work on your Fitbit when you went from Jericho to Jerusalem. Um, but it was also a very scenic uh, walk. And the reason for this is because as you made the journey, the brown, dusty desert was transformed into lush green growth right before your eyes. It was kind of like going up Highway 87 to Payson, right, where the landscape just changes right in front of you. And when you come to the end of it, there's something spectacular. You come to the summit, which is on the Mount of Olives. As you come over the summit, off in the distance, shining in the sun, you could see the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem on a small hill of its own. And in our text, Matthew says that Jesus and the disciples are on the summit. They're on the Mount of Olives when Jesus uh, gives two instructions to his disciples. He tells them uh, to go into town and to find a donkey and a colt for him to ride on. And so they go into town and they secure this donkey and this colt. It would have been really common during the Passover festivals and other feasts like it to show hospitality to visitors. Maybe this is what the owner of the animals is doing. Maybe it's his way of honoring a famous rabbi. Uh, The text doesn't tell us, but clearly Jesus is up to something in our text, right? Clearly he has a plan and he's orchestrating events and he has a point to coming into Jerusalem. But as we'll see in just a moment, the crowd misses his message. They misunderstood why Jesus came to Jerusalem. Look with me at Matthew 21, verses 8 through 9. Jesus is mounted on a donkey and Matthew writes, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest heaven. So in our text here, the parade begins and this road is lined uh, with all kinds of people who are clapping and shouting and roaring for Jesus. I imagine that little girls are sitting on their father's shoulders to get a view and kids are pushing their way to the front in order to see Jesus. And teenagers are texting and uh, taking pictures on their iPhone because Jesus, the celebrity, the miracle worker, the man who just days before raised Lazarus from the dead is in their midst and he's traveling by. And so the text says that they lay out the red carpet, right? They take off their cloaks 
and they put them on the ground for Jesus to walk on. This would have been a very bizarre thing to do. Most of these people only own one cloak, and so to take it off and put it on the ground would have been unusual. You would only do this for a special person. You'd only do this for somebody of royalty. It goes on to say that they cut uh, branches off the trees. We know from John's gospel that these are small palm branches, and they waved them in the air, and they threw them on the ground for Jesus to walk on as well. This also would have been a very strange thing to do. We don't just cut branches off of trees and wave them when we're excited, right? It might have been a little awkward even for you earlier to kind of wave your palm branch in the air. But for the Israelites, this was a way of welcoming a king. See, 200 years before this, uh, the Israelite hero by the name of Judas Maccabeus defeated the pagan king Antiochus Epiphanes, and he marched his army into the city of Jerusalem. And as he was going into Jerusalem, we know from history that crowds cut off palm branches, waved them in the air, and put them before Judas. And after that, he set up a 100-year dynasty and freed the Israelites. And the crowds of Palm Sunday are wanting and hoping and anticipating that Jesus is a king like that. That's why they're singing Hosanna. Hosanna is Hebrew for save us. They want salvation. They want Jesus to save them from Roman oppression, from unjust taxes and corrupt leaders and poverty and oppression. See, the crowds on Palm Sunday wanted a certain kind of king. They wanted a spiritual Jack Bauer, 24 fans. This is the longest day of my life, right? They wanted a William Wallace, Braveheart fans, somebody who would conquer by force and give them freedom. But by the end of the week, they're incredibly disappointed. In Luke 24, we learn that two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and one of them remarks how although Jesus was a prophet, They thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. They thought he was the one that was going to liberate him. But it turns out that he didn't. That he's just like all those others. That he's a failed attempt. By Friday, Rome is untouched. A terrorist is freed. And Jesus is dead. Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. Jesus didn't come to to meet their expectations The big idea of our sermon today and the reason why Jesus disappointed the crowds is because Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations, Jesus came to meet our needs. Jesus didn't come to meet the crowd's expectations, their desires, what they wanted him to be, but he did come to meet their needs. The first worshipers wanted him to defeat Rome, but he needed to defeat the devil. They wanted him to liberate them from national slavery, but he needed to liberate them from the slavery of death. They wanted him to establish Israel, but he wanted to establish a kingdom that would never end. The crowds wanted him to give them the good life, but Jesus came to give them and to give us eternal life. Jesus says, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king you think I am. I didn't just come into this world to give you surface level freedom to take care of what you could see with your eyes, to give you financial freedom, or to give you freedom from your mother-in-law, your boss, or the IRS, right? A lot of us want that kind of freedom, and God understands. But the reason that Jesus marched into Jerusalem was to do something much bigger than that. It was to liberate us and free us from sin, from spiritual emptiness, from the need to always have to prove ourselves to others and to God. And because Jesus came to meet our needs, I think there are several important implications for a text this morning. I want to give us three implications and invitations for Matthew 21. The first one is that because Jesus came to meet our needs, we should expect disappointment. 
We should expect disappointment. How did the crowds handle disappointment? Not very well, right? When Jesus wasn't who they thought he was, they couldn't handle surprises. They couldn't handle a different kind of king. And this gets at what I call the difference between a closed-fisted faith and an open-handed faith. Okay, closed-fisted faith is what the crowds have here. This is the kind of faith that can't handle spiritual disappointments. It's the kind of faith that makes demands on Jesus, and when he doesn't meet our demands, gets frustrated and walks away or starts ignoring Jesus. I don't know if you've ever known somebody with a closed-fisted faith. Uh, My college roommate was like this. We attended a Christian school together, but when Jesus didn't give him the answers he wanted— and when, he, he didn't, when his social life didn't fit in with the kingdom of God, he eventually walked away from his faith and washed his hands of Christianity. That's a close-fisted faith. That's what the crowds have. But what we need, what Jesus invites us to have, is an open-handed faith, a kind of faith that is teachable and malleable and humble, a kind of faith that understands that sometimes Jesus has to disappoint us in order to meet our real needs. This is why it says in Isaiah 55, 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I don't know if you've ever seen Training Day, but there's this great line where Denzel looks at his partner and says, this is chess, it ain't checkers. Anybody remember that? God is playing chess, right? God is doing something bigger than we realize. God is working behind the scenes, and because of this, we need to have an open-handed faith. All of us will face disappointment in this life. People we love will suffer, Prayers will go unanswered. Parts of scripture are sometimes tough to understand. And in the midst of that, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to wrestle with those things. But can we do that in a way that is open to God? Can we do that with an open-handed faith that is teachable and humble, that is willing to search for God in the midst of our disappointments? That at the end of the day is willing to say, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the kind of faith that Jesus invites us to have, an open-handed faith. I remember in 2004, um, I had just come back from a mission trip in Fiji. And uh, after returning home on the mission trip, um, I really felt like the Lord was calling me to serve him in full-time vocational ministry. So I was fired up. I was excited. Uh, I prayed about the next step. And after prayer and counsel and research, I felt like I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. God wanted me to move to Chicago to study at Moody Bible Institute. And so I packed my bags. I bought some winter clothes. I was really excited. And then several weeks before I was planning to go, I got a letter in the mail from Moody saying your application has been rejected. And uh, it was just like somebody took the air out of me. I was deflated. I was disappointed. I was let down. But in the midst of that, I kept open hands. And I went to Simpson University, which was the only other school I applied to. And my first meal on campus, there was this beautiful woman named Kelly Hovey who was sitting across from me, uh, coincidentally. God took me there to meet her. And then the next semester, Moody reapplied my application without telling me, accepted me. I moved to Chicago, married Kelly, graduated. I mean, and the rest is history. But as I look back over those sequence of events, I could see that God didn't give me what I expected. God didn't give me what I thought he should have. He didn't let me down, but he did that in order to meet my needs. And Jesus will do the same with you. We can confidently follow Jesus through our disappointments, even if that means taking up our cross and following him to Golgotha. Jesus is faithful. He will walk with you in the midst of your disappointments. He will work all 
things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The first implication for us this morning is to expect disappointment. Ask what God is teaching you in the midst of that. The second implication is that because Jesus has come to meet your needs, we should ask for new hearts. We should ask for new hearts. You see, the problem with the crowds, again, is that they were focusing on the symptoms of sin instead of the cause of sin. They wanted Jesus to heal the symptoms of evil and problem and heartache instead of addressing the root cause. And Jesus came into this world and he marched into Jerusalem to tear evil out by the roots. And according to Jesus, those roots are inside here. They're inside every human heart. Mark 7, 20 through 23, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. You see, the real enemy in life is not your boss. It's not your nemesis at work or your mother-in-law. It's not even ISIS or some terrorist, as bad as they may be. Those are all surface-level symptoms of sin. The real enemy is the human heart. The real enemy is the sin that is embedded in each and every one of us. And Jesus came to deal with that. Jesus came to give us heart surgery. And this begins when we say yes to Jesus, but it certainly doesn't end there. Uh, Mark Laberton uh, used to be a Presbyterian pastor, and he's the current uh, president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And he tells this great story of when his four-year-old son first became a Christian. His four-year-old son was reading the Jesus story. You know, he was really impressed by um, the events of Jesus' life. And so he came up to Mark and he said, Daddy, Jesus is in my heart. You know, it's just the words that every single parent wants to hear. It just kind of melts your heart. And then his son said, and Daddy, so is the donkey. Right? Isn't that true? Raise your hand if you have a donkey in your heart this morning. Few, I know there's more of you than that. I th- don't we all have one of those in here? Don't we all have this donkey that just kind of kicks and bucks us and pushes us around, you know, when things are going well and drags us into temptation? Don't we all have this donkey? I know I do. I struggle with patience. I struggle with forgiving other people. This is one of the reasons I don't have a bumper sticker on the back of my car. It wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, just the other day, I was driving on the 202, and I was in the fast lane, and going fast, fast enough, and all of a sudden this SUV comes barreling by, swerves in the carpool lane, cuts me off, and then he has the audacity to turn on his windshield wipers. And he shoots uh, windshield wiper fluid over his car onto mine. And I am just irate. I mean, I'm fuming at the mouth. I don't know what to do. So I move over to the next lane. I floor it, go as fast as I can my little car. I I give him some dirty looks, make sure he knows that I'm angry with him, and then I cut him off and slow down as slow as I can on the freeway, like a NASCAR pace car or something like that. And the worst part about it was I just preached a sermon on how we need to be a servant to all and how we need to wash one another's feet like Jesus washed our feet. And there I was giving people dirty looks on the freeway and cutting them off and playing this tit-for-tat game. I don't know what your sin struggle is. I don't know what the donkey in your heart looks like. But next time you feel the donkey, next time your flesh rises up and invites you to choose lust or to feed your addiction or to be mean or hold a grudge against your spouse or to be overbearing with your children, I want you to do two things. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just 
to forgive us and to purify us of all unrighteousness. First, confess your sins to God, friends. There is no sin. There is no shame that is too big for the grace, mercy, and love of God. He will forgive you if anything you have done. Confession needs to be a way of life. Second, ask for more of the Spirit. Ask for a fresh indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ask for the fruit of the Spirit in your life, for love and joy and peace and patience. Ask for more of that. Lean and depend on God when the donkey is kicking. Allow Jesus to remake your heart. Allow Jesus to give you a new heart. That's a second implication. The third and final implication for us this morning is very simple. Because Jesus came to meet our needs, we should worship him. We should worship him. In Matthew 21, the crowds are honoring and praising Jesus. They're singing songs from the Psalter. They're throwing their cloaks and their palm branches on the ground as a way of honoring Jesus, someone who they believe is a king. And in a sense, they're doing better than they know. They're half right, aren't they? Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus deserves their worship and he deserves our worship. When I first started at Hope several years ago, uh, somebody came up to me after the service and said they were struggling with this. They were struggling with the idea of worshiping Jesus. They said, Pastor Brandon, I don't understand why I have to worship Jesus. It seems so archaic and strange and weird. And uh, in response, I said two things. I said, first, we need to start to demythologize worship, right? Worship um, is very simple. Worship, everybody worships something. Some people worship uh, their, their looks. Other people worship success or their job or fishing or sports or maybe Jesus. But everybody worships something. What you worship is what you spend your time on. It's what you spend your money on. It's what you daydream about. It's what you have nightmares about losing. That's your God. That's what you worship. And according to the Bible, we become like whatever we worship. We become like whatever we worship. Whatever we worship has a way of pressing us into its mold. And that's why it's so important for us to worship Jesus. For our hearts to be overflowed with love and joy and praise for him. Because that will press us into his mold. The second thing I said was, worship is just the natural overflow of the heart. It's not something strange. It's not something you manufacture. When two lovers are in love and they first meet, there's worship going on, there's praise, there's adoration going on. And when our hearts are in tune with Jesus, we are connected to him. When we are reading the Bible and it's coming alive in our hearts and bearing fruit. And we are talking to our friends and inviting them to Easter and telling them about Jesus and admiring his creation. Worship is the natural overflow of that. It's what happens when you're satisfied with Jesus all of us need to be satisfied with Jesus. If you need a reason for this, I'd invite you just to look at Holy Week. Look at what Jesus did after the Palm Sunday parade. After he came down off the summit and descended into the Kidron Valley on his way to Jerusalem, we learn from the Gospels that tears start falling from his eyes and he starts weeping and crying because of Israel's unbelief because of the destruction that's coming on them in AD 70. And then he cleanses the temple where the religious leaders are selling out to the world. He publicly teaches in the temple for four days, warning the people not to follow the religious leaders because they were selfish and they only wanted money and power. He honors the widow who gave her last penny, told everyone how the world would end, went public with his ministry when there was a bounty out for his head when he was a wanted man. 
He has one last meal with his disciples, prays in Gethsemane, is betrayed and arrested, stands trial in front of Pontius Pilate, and is in complete control of the situation, calls the shots the whole time, tells Pilate that he is a king with a different kind of kingdom. He is cruelly mocked and tortured, and he doesn't retaliate, even though he could have. He's given a razor-sharp crown of thorns that sends blood literally gushing down his face. And then after he is nailed to a cross, gasping for his last breath, he prays out to God to forgive his killers. He prays out to God to forgive his executioners, to forgive the people that hate him, to forgive the people that were killing him. Who is like Jesus, friends? Who else is worthy of your worship? He is so misunderstood, and his kingdom is lost on so many people. It's what Charles Spurgeon calls a strange kingdom. It's a strange kingdom. It's not like anything you've ever seen before. It's a kingdom where the poorest of the poor can become spiritual nobility. It's a kingdom where you become royalty through service, not through DNA or bloodline. It's a kingdom that was founded and led by prostitutes and fishermen and tax collectors and widows. Those were the founding fathers and mothers of our faith. It's a kingdom where there is no bullets, bombs, or guns. It's a kingdom where there is no taxes and bureaucracy. Amen. It's a kingdom that you are invited to join in, but it will cost you everything, but it is worth it because in Christ's kingdom, there is lasting joy. There is lasting joy. In the kingdom of man, in this kingdom, people fight and they claw and they devour one another for 20, 30, 40 years of peace and stability and happiness. But in Christ's kingdom, there is a peace and there is a stability, there is a happiness that starts now and goes forever and ever and ever. Do you realize that one day you will get your loved ones back? One day you will get a touch, you will get a hold, your children that have died and your parents that have died, and your friends. One day, you won't have to worry about physical ailments anymore, about cancer. That's not going to be there in heaven. You won't have to worry about arthritis or bad hips or whatever your thing is. You won't have to worry about finances, about making ends meet. You won't have to worry about sin and temptation. God will do surgery and take the donkey out of our hearts before he lets us into heaven. Amen. And best of all, someday when you enter paradise, when you enter the city of God, when you enter the new creation and the new Jerusalem that's sitting on it and you come through those gates, you will see God. You will see the God who made you and loves you and has been pursuing you and chasing after you every single day of your life. Join, asking you to join his family, inviting you to follow him in faithfulness. Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations, but he absolutely came to meet our needs. And when you and I begin to get a glimpse of what that entails, how could we do anything else other than worship? How could we not fall on our face? We were made to worship. We were made to live in awe of God. We were made to have our hearts overflowing with praise and adoration for Jesus. So this Holy Week, I want to invite all of us to worship Jesus, to allow him to meet our needs. Let's anticipate occasional disappointments, friends. It's going to happen. Expect it. Ask what God is teaching you in the midst of it. Let's ask Jesus for new hearts. Let's ask him to remake our hearts as we confess our sin and depend on the Spirit. And finally, most importantly, let's worship Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's reading the Gospels. Maybe it's praying in the morning. Maybe it's just resting in the promises of God. But find a way to worship Jesus during Holy Week. Please join me in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who is worthy of all of our worship and so much more. We thank you that he came and died and was resurrected so that we can have new life, so that we can have a relationship with you, so that we can have a fresh start and a new beginning, Father. It is such a joy, it is such a pleasure to live in communion with him, to know him and to serve him, Father. And I pray that during the next seven days, Father, that you would set our hearts ablaze, that you would help us to deal with our disappointments, that you would remake our hearts, and that you would give us a bigger, more beautiful view of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.